All right, welcome to a special... There, I like to think all episodes of Core are special, but this one's a special, special episode. Uh, we have a wonderful uh, superstar uh, Guinness uh, Book of World Record holder uh, guest, Lewis, big dog, Copman of GK <laughs> Selections. Um, what's your, what's your, how many Guinness Book of World Records records do you hold? Uh, just the, just the two, just, uh, most foolish person to try to start a Portuguese wine importing company and, uh, under 12's ping pong champion of the Midwest. Nice. You're not the, you're not the hot dog guy. Oh no, that's not, um... I thought you were the guy that ate the plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The plane that was shaped like a hot dog. It's like Oscar Meyer's yeah, plane. Oscar yeah. Meyer. Uh, no, the the, the, hot, the hot dog Express. guy uh, is. Uh, I did have a, a friend growing up who did get into competitive eating, though, and uh, I think got to meet the the hot dog guy a couple times. Wow, yeah, Ooh, that's that's, that's a true story as well. <laughs> Damn, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're more of a competitive drinking type establishment. I know here, that's where I ended we'll, up as well. We'll allow it. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. So we're we're gathered here today. Uh, to discuss uh, Portuguese wine. We've had, I think, maybe one episode in the past uh, talking about it, but this is going to be real masterclass. This is a, a certified promise that after listening to this episode, you will know everything that there is to know about Portuguese wine. Go take the, your master psalm exam. And uh, when they start asking you on the oral part about questions of esoteric things, you know, just ask them back Portuguese stuff, and they won't know. <laughs> What are they going to say? They say, how about them apples, pal? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's basically how I've developed my reputation, is just speaking lots of things that nobody knows anything about, and so I could really say anything. Yeah. 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 It's a great way to get people to like you, too, just being a know-it-all. That's a solid core business principle, I think. Is uh, So, yeah. Um, <laughs> know-it-all energy is, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean... All podcasts are really just people being like, I know enough to tell people stuff for an hour, so... This is the right place for that kind of energy. Please, please yeah. lean in. Yeah, well, uh, we'll make it educational and fun, as your podcast always is, I've gathered. Oh, yes. <laughs> wow. There's nothing if not purely educational and serious business about... We were actually going to name our... The original name for our podcast was the Serious Business, No Jokes Allowed podcast about wine. <laughs> oh, I thought this was the Guildson podcast. Did I get on the wrong... Uh... Uh, I'm we're, so we're imagine... a subsidiary of. There's sort of like a you know it's like a podcast <laughs> yeah, network, yeah. and we're we represent kind of the um the attempt to appeal to the youth. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Which so we've gotten a lot of like a, a lot of notes about how we're not you know they can't bring people who are under 21 into like the wine community. So yeah, we really mm-hmm. uh, marketing ourselves as a young adult podcast has been um yeah. a consistent yeah. sticking point for the higher ups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were we were purchased by a Guildsom Capital, actually. <laughs> yeah. And so they've actively been divesting, you know, us. They, but then they found out that we just use free audio software and like thirty dollars microphones, and they're like, "There's nothing here." Yeah. Well, did yeah, you no. did you sell them any cork tank coins before they uh, before they divested? Yes, actually, yeah. yeah. Cork tank coins. I'm glad that you asked about that because everybody go to what's well, uh well go to Binance.com. And Look up pour your money coin. into cork toy. Taint coin, yeah. Taint coin's going to the moon. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We're way, we're way too late, right? We're, like, that's not we're minting that a new one anymore. Yeah, we're minting a new one today, though, called Baga coin. 
Yes, gonna yes. Be a, it's going to be really hot in the European market. Bogacoin is going to moon, actually. Buy low now. <laughs> Buy low now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what got yeah. you into wanting to import Portuguese wine? Like, where's the, what's the, what is the, because uh, you, you, well, wait, I, I suppose you said that before uh, we started recording, but I get the sense that you're sort of the um, real passion behind the project. Uh, is, is that incorrect or... Um, What's going I on would there? say that I'm I'm the wine experience behind the project. You know, my my business partner Ben Grossberg uh, is certainly extremely passionate about the wines, uh, and the sort of origin story behind the company is just as much him as it is me. Uh, and so I used to work in a wine store in downtown Manhattan called the Dues Wines, where we sold fancy wine to fancy people: Burgundy, Barolo, Bordeaux, Brunello the bees um, to private clients and you know, that side of the business in the wine world is getting really tricky just because allocations are shrinking on those wines to almost nothing. And uh, your margins when you sell the wines are getting smaller because even though the prices are increasing on the retail side of things, the wholesale prices are increasing even more. Uh, And so we were always having to look for other cool stuff to sell. And I in particular fell into a niche of, high-end Portuguese wine. And even more specifically, and we'll sort of talk about this more as we're drinking some delicious baga, I fell into and in love with wines that were coming from the Portuguese coastline. Uh, And so places like Bairada, where I think you guys have some wines we're going to drink today, and Colarish, which is another super special place. You know, I was incredibly fortunate to be exposed to these wines that I increasingly discovered were actually pretty rare in the U.S. market. And I know I said that I found these wines because uh, I couldn't get the, I couldn't get enough of the Burgundy and the Brollo or the Bordeaux or whatever. But uh, basically I sold through as you, much of you the- had to find a new bee. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we, we found three more bees <laughs> as, uh, as you'll find. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but so a lot of this Portuguese wine was amazing. I could find older stuff of it, at least initially, uh, that drank beautifully and was significantly cheaper for me to purchase and for my customers to purchase. Uh, but I quickly discovered that a lot of the best stuff, whether it be from you know the OG established producers in these regions or the sort of exciting uh, younger generation that's popping up all over Europe. It just didn't, it wasn't being brought into the United States. Uh, you know, either these companies, producers rather didn't have importers or they had extremely dysfunctional relationships with their importers. Uh, and so my business partner, Ben Grossberg, was a customer of mine who uh, bought some of this Portuguese wine for me and was really into it. And he started asking me for more of it. And I basically just had to tell him, you know, I can't get you anymore. The importer is not bringing in any more of it. Uh, And so he asked me if we wanted to start a company to do it ourselves. And that was at the end of 2020. And I initially was just going to consult and just sort of point him towards producers. But then pretty early on, we had the opportunity to work with Luis Pato, who, you know, we'll talk about more, but is one of the most important producers in the history of Portuguese wine is the godfather of wine in Bairada. 
uh, and just in general makes incredibly delicious juice. Uh, and so I, as soon as that happened, I was like, okay, now I'm in. Uh, we're going to do this together. And yeah, it's been an amazing journey. Um, and we now have this really incredible roster of producers. I'm discovering more about Portugal every day and more of what's really exciting. Um, but Bayrata is still sort of where my, my heart is, I guess you could say, when it comes to Portuguese wine and wine in general. It's you know the first thing I want to put in front of people when I'm trying to explain what's so exciting about what's going on in that country. That's hell yeah. Uh, so... Uh, Hmm. I'm trying to decide which which question to go with first. Um, well, uh, I guess generally, when you're talking about allocations of um, Burgundy and Bordeaux, kind of leading you to look for other things, um, other avenues to explore when introducing people to new wines or wines that you could import and make a solvent business out of. Mm-hmm. What uh, at this point, like, what volume of Portuguese wine are you bringing in? Like, what what is a like what is that production like and what is the logistics of that? Yeah, I mean, so that is changing really quickly. Uh, you know, for the first essentially year of our business, we just self-distributed the wines in New York. Uh, and mm-hmm. But over the last sort of six months, we've started developing relationships with distributors around the country as well. Uh, and so we've started to scale up quite rapidly um relatively speaking um and so you know whereas before we were importing wines two three or importing wine two three pallets at a time you know now we're importing wine in full container loads which is you know roughly 20 pallets at a time wow okay yeah um and so (laughs) Yeah. yeah it's um it's hard to say i guess uh right now um, exactly sort of what volumes we're going to be doing in the next 12 months from now. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that the message that we've gotten through and also just the fact that we've sort of planted our flag and said, you know, we are going to represent the very best wines coming out of Portugal. And that is a bit scary because, you know, there's not necessarily, <laughs> we're still figuring out how much space there is for Portuguese wine in the market, but it also has given us the opportunity to work with some of the very best winemakers in Europe. Um, you know, I could not have started a, you know, I, I could have gone to Burgundy, I could have gone to Champagne, I could have gone to Barolo and found young, exciting producers that are, you know, doing all the right things in terms of farming and low intervention winemaking and making these really pretty, fashionable wines, which are really delicious. I'm not saying anything against them. Um, but I can also do that in Portugal. And I can go and find, like, I can work with Luis Pato and I can work with um, Quinta de Moro, who's another incredibly established producer in Portugal. Uh, literally today, uh, we just announced um, on Instagram that Susana Esteban had joined the portfolio, and she is widely considered in Europe to be one of the great winemakers on the continent. Uh, in Portugal, considered to be one of the great winemakers in the country. Uh, and you know, imagine starting a Burgundy importing company and being like, hey, Rulo, Dujac, Russo, like, <laughs> you know, we're going to do it. I'm all going to do that. We're going to do it all now. And you've never worked in an importing company before. Uh, you've never worked on that side of the business before. You know, it, what I've, what I say we've been able to build in Portugal, I think is really special and really unique uh, in terms of just a concentration of incredible wine uh, that I think would be hard to replicate in any category on any single importer. Um, and there are other good Portuguese wine importing companies. Um, but, 
you know, that model, the, the, the problem with importing Portuguese wine over the last, say, 10, 15 years is that so many of them have, those companies have been built to cater to the uh, Portuguese population in states like New Jersey, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. And that, just by demographics, that population is just a bit more working class. It's just a bit more, they don't want to buy super expensive wine. Um, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, but it means that those companies are not necessarily interested in bringing in their producers more expensive wines because they just don't, they don't have that like exposure to the fine wine market or the imagination to see the possibilities of where these wines fit into, you know, not just the Portuguese wine consumer, but the fine wine consumer. Um, and so yes. that slightly different approach that we've taken of saying these are just great wines that we think deserve a place on great wine lists and in great wine stores, regardless of whether the people buying them are Portuguese or not, uh, or of, of Portuguese descent, uh, has just given us the opportunity to work with an unbelievable roster of producers that I just, I'm so excited to go out and sell every day. So, um, yeah, that, that makes sense. I, it makes sense that your model is sort of, uh, wine, wine enthusiast forward, uh, and well, not the magazine, but you know, like people who love <laughs> wine, um, being focused on selling to them. Uh, I had two other, w- one kind of follow up question to that. And then another one that kind of takes off in a different direction. Uh, first, I guess, how, when did you start the company? Um, so how long has this been going on? Yeah, so I mean, the the sort of twinkle in the eye happened at the end of 2020 um, when Ben, my business partner, mm. asked me to leave my, you know, stable health insurance providing job to start a wine importing company. Um, and it took us about a year to get things off the ground. Uh, and so we got our first samples uh the weekend after Thanksgiving in 2021, which, as you know, is the greatest time to start a new business in the wine world. <laughs> um, and, oh, yeah. uh, you know, I was very fortunate to have some people that I knew personally who were willing to see me sort of the week before December. Um, and I sold a little bit of wine uh, in that month. But uh, really, I'd say we got started in like January, February of 2022. And that's when we were okay, actually so, able to, yeah. you know, get into the market and see people. And it's when I didn't feel quite so terrible about just endlessly sending people emails and knocking on doors and begging people to talk to me and taste some wine. <laughs> okay, so you, it's relatively quick how you were saying going from two to three pallets up to full container. Like that's happened in not, that's happened over two two vintages of current release wines and then, you know... Um, as you were saying, you've been able to find sort of older, older wines, vintage wines from Portugal as well. That's been part of your portfolio. Yeah, it's. I mean, so in terms of how quickly things have happened, um, you know, when I look back on it, it. I guess you're right. It has happened pretty quick. I. I honestly have no frame of reference um, <laughs> for how quickly these things build, or you know, what quantities are a lot of wine. You know, we talk to more established distributors and the quantities that they talk about moving, and I'm seems like the numbers seem absolutely nuts to me. But in terms of building something from scratch in an obscure category, uh, you know, I definitely, I think that the success has come, or I say the success, you know, we're still definitely still building. Uh, but we, we've been able to ramp up relatively quickly, again, just because I think that the the sort of information disparity of what there is in Portugal versus what people know there is means that there's just an absolute 
treasure trove of wine there that has yet to be imported into the United States. Um, and so that has been, and distributors in other states have started to, we've had some really incredible conversations and people are getting excited and they're start, already starting to have a lot of success in the markets uh, where they're working, which is wonderful. Um, and what was the second part of this question? I'm so sorry. Well, the so I had a separate question that I mm-hmm. was it was going to take off in a kind of different direction. The other thing I was wondering about, and you'd mentioned winemakers doing a low in- intervention winemaking, best practices farming sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Have you seen a sort of um, is there a crossover or sort of uh, communal like rising tides lift all boats sort of um, combination uh, of successes? Because of, and this, uh, winding around this question a bit, uh, I know a fair number of people who are interested in the natural wine movement and natural wines generally, mm-hmm. who uh, have a lot of favorites out of Portugal. And so have you seen sort of a, I don't know, a, a synergy there with with that or... Um, I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I mean, so I, this, this question has like a lot of, you know, different ways to go about it. You know, the natural wine scene is definitely alive in Portugal. Uh, and of course, there's like the natural wine, the aesthetic and natural wine, sort of the uh, the ethic and methodology. Um, and, you know, there's certainly aesthetically natural sort of kombucha e wine that is made in Portugal and is delicious and <laughs> sells well. Um, it's not necessarily what my company does, not because I don't think those wines are worth drinking. Um, often the economics of those wines get a little tricky from an importation standpoint where they get really expensive by the time they make it to the United States. And all of a sudden I'm selling like $25 wholesale, you know, that would be like a 40 to $45 bottle of wine that again, sort of tastes like something that could be coming from somewhere else just because of all of those natural wine, quote unquote, associated flavors. Um, but mm-hmm. in terms of farming getting better and people being more conscientious in the cellar and more sort of uh, reflexive in their thinking and not just like dumping sulfur in because it's what they've always done uh, and being sort of more purpose driven about it and being more conscious of it, you know, that's certainly happening. Um, but, you know, Portugal has had amazing artisan producers that have been doing things the right way for 40, 50 years. Um, you know, certainly not all of them are like that. You know, there's also been a lot of you know, industrially made plonk. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> when you look at people like Luis Pato or Quinta de Moro, and I'm not trying to make a claim that they would meet every single sort of natural wine criteria uh, that they do today, uh, you know, when they got started in like the, the 80s and 90s. Um, but the sort of thought and, uh, intention behind making the best possible wine and doing things with respect to the environment and the people who are making it, uh, has certainly always been there. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that there is a really exciting new generation of people. The, uh, the wine world in Portugal is very small. Everybody knows each other whenever I go and visit. Uh, and especially the first couple of trips where we were finding new producers, um, you know, we would go from one to the other and, you know, they, people who we were visiting would basically know who we had been to before without us even saying, cause everyone was texting <laughs> each other and, oh, I heard you were with this guy and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, 
a small and I would say relatively collaborative community uh, in terms of Portuguese wine happening right now. Uh, and that exists, you know, it, in some official ways as well. Like, you know, you guys are drinking Luis Pato and Filippo Pato, uh, who are both, you know, physically related. Filippo is Luis's daughter. Uh, but Filippo also founded an organization called the Baga Friends, uh, which is, you know, a, a group of more traditionally minded producers in Bayrata that are committed to using indigenous varieties and natural methods to make amazing wines. Uh, and those types of things don't necessarily exist as officially in other places, but everyone's always talking to each other and helping each other out in the cellars and lending equipment and selling each other grapes and you know, all the good stuff. I mean, I, I think that people in Portugal understand that it's really important that the uh, the brand of the country and any of their individual regions is built uh, rather than just their own individual brand as a producer. Uh, and it's something that we're talking to them about uh, as an importer and trying to get them to communicate more and work together. Um, but it's not something that we need to, to do dragging them, kicking and streaming. Everyone's, you know, seems to understand and be open to those types of ideas. I hope that answered the question. It's really cool. That's like probably the most diplomatic way I've heard anybody describe natural wine. And it's <laughs> phenomenal. So that's, yeah. I imagine it's well practiced. And, no, uh, I mean, I steal a couple of those lines. I can't you know? necessarily say that that's what it's like in all markets in the United States. Um, but at least in New York, I think that there is a certain level of uh, at least people who are open minded enough to not be just totally insufferable. Uh, <laughs> I think that there is a certain level of just detente and a recognition that whether a wine is natural or conventional, you know, we'll work mm -hmm. with it as it's delicious. Um, totally. You yeah. know, the the problem with bad natural wine is this problem. The same problem with bad conventional wine is that it's boring. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and that's yeah. was certainly my attitude around building the portfolio as well as just finding really interesting wine that was true to place and delicious. Yeah. So I've, I have a couple of questions about like <clears throat> with Baga, right? Mm -hmm. So people will sort of, I kind of see it marketed in, I mean, in, in some ways similar to how like Mencia yeah. in Spain is marketed where it's like, oh, if you like Pinot or if you like, and it's sort of similar also to how um, Norello Mascalese yeah. in Sicily is, is, is marketed where it's like, if you like these, these like three or four other things, then you will, chances are you'll like this thing. Um, which, you know, in the case of like Norello and Mencia, um, like I, 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 I agree, I think more with Norello than I do Mencia. Yeah, um, I, 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 was, I totally agree with you, actually, in terms of that, uh, which one is more similar. Uh, and yeah, yeah, but continue on. Yeah, no. So I wanted to ask, like, in, in, in those contexts, it's like more of a sort of a, like a pitch to get people in the door for experiencing those things. But do you think Baga, and I would I would personally believe that like the answer to this is yes, but like, do you think that expressions of that grape can sort of like achieve the highs that like Pinot can, can in like say Burgundy or, cause you know, people will say like, oh, you know, you know, uh, Burgundy is singular in that it, it can't do, it, it can achieve the highs that like nothing else can. But uh, we had a very recent uh, tasting a blind tasting that kind of uh, suggested otherwise pretty pretty strongly yeah by uh people who were very burgundy centric but as somebody who i assume you had lots of old baga from very you know 
like old vineyards and in, intentionally made wines and and that to be able to see it's yeah absolutely death. um and so yeah i mean I'll, I'll i have to plant the flag you know baga is one of the great great varieties on the planet um and i'm not necessarily even someone who loves to talk about wine in those terms in terms of you know mm-hmm. the grape variety is the necessary defining right, right. characteristic of what's going on um but baga does the thing that pinot noir does it does the thing that nebbiolo does um it's incredibly transparent it's incredibly sensitive to subtle differences in winemaking subtle differences in terroir and you also kind of it's similar even more so than say Pinot Noir to Burgundy because there is so much Pinot Noir planted all over the world. Uh, you know, it's maybe a more similar to conversation to what happened. You know, Nebbiolo really only comes from Piedmont. You know, there's little bits of it planted in right, like, Australia right. or like Santa Cruz or whatever. Um, but, you know, you also kind of just have to talk about Bayrata as a place because um, Baga is really mm-hmm. only grown in Bayrata, at least today. Uh, you know, there were other parts of Portugal where you might have found more Baga planted 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, but, you know, Bayrata and really the whole coast of Portugal between Lisbon and Porto is this giant vein of calcareous clay. Uh, the soils are very similar to Burgundy, very similar to Champagne, uh, very similar to Sancerre. And I know there are differences between those places, but to, you know, give it a general sense, you have very right. chalky uh calcareous clay soil uh the other thing that sort of complicates it on the coast of portugal is that you have a lot of sand uh sort of pockets of it spread Mm -hmm. throughout uh and the other thing is that you are in the most maritime climate in continental europe uh and a lot of people seem to have some misconceptions about what that means exactly generally it's mild all year through and there's not a very intense diurnal shift um so it's a very sort of stable mild temperature uh, sort of in between like the 50s and 80s, probably in Bayrata, pretty much all year round. The highs are never getting that high. And there are more extreme con- uh, maritime climates on the coast. Like Collarche is even more ridiculous uh, in terms of how stable the climate and temperature is. Um, and so you have this very moderate climate. You have these gentle rolling clay limestone hills. And so the expression that you get from Baga is so, and the subtleties change so much depending on, you know, the ratio of limestone to clay in that specific vineyard, you know, the various level of flora, because there's also a lot of like pine and eucalyptus forest in Bayrata. And so you can quite literally taste the vineyard sometimes in the same way you can in like California or Australia. Uh, mm-hmm. And how close you are to the ocean, you know, is there some sand in the vineyard? Uh, you know, Baga is such a chimera, uh, you know, like you were saying, sometimes it is compared to Nebbiolo, especially it can be compared to Pinot Noir. It can be compared, I think sometimes even to Cabernet and Syrah. Uh, and so much of it really depends on what the producer is doing, where those grapes are growing. Uh, and it's all happening in a space that's, you know, about the size of like the Macomb, like, Mm -hmm. And that's probably the closest analogy too, in terms of like the the geology and uh, geography as well. It's not this like single contiguous hill like you'd find in the Cote d'Or, uh, but it is all of these sort of like undulating, uh, gentle slopes like you'd find in Mecca. Um, and yeah, Very it's cool. it's just an incredibly transparent, long lived, beautiful, delicious wine. Uh, and if you do love, especially I think Barolo. Uh, or Burgundy or Bordeaux, like you will love 
Bayrata, not necessarily because it tastes exactly like those things, but because it's delicious and complicated in the same types of ways. Uh, you get all of that beautiful balance of earth, fruit, bountiful acidity, you know, uh, and all of the sort of beautiful sort of tertiary development you get as the wines start to age. Uh, and I get to sell old Luis Pato and, you know, older wines, other <laughs> wines from Bayrata as well, you know, like you don't, mm -hmm. you don't find... 20-year-old Barolo on the market that you can buy retail for 75 bucks. Um, and that's what I'm selling right now. Right. And it's not even, you know, it's Barolo from a great producer that I'm selling for 75 bucks, the equivalent, uh, or that the retailers <laughs> I'm selling for 75 bucks. Um, and so it's right. we're in such a special moment of Byrata drinking because this is not going to be the case in 10 years. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm selling it all. <laughs> Uh, a right. lot of this old wine is going to be gone, um, and so I would I would drink it now while you can. Nice. And you were saying how like it's because of the um, sort of the markets like in the you know Massachusetts, Rhode Island, sort of that that area. The sort of would would you say like the sort of like the higher end of certain producers' portfolios had not been or are not being um, imported here as much as they as they will be in like you're saying in ten years or so. Or yeah, like, I mean, or, I hope it's yeah. not going to take that long. Uh, hopefully in the next year or two, um, you know, we're going to see mm -hmm. a lot of these producers starting to be brought in. You know, it, it, it's not just us. Um, like you are starting to see right, right. Um, recognition of the quality of these wines and uh, other importers that are not these sort of legacy sort of Portuguese diaspora companies are picking up these producers and starting to work with the whole portfolio. Um, but, you know, they're not necessarily working with the whole portfolio. So like Skernik imports Philip Apato, they do a great job. Um, but I remember when I was a retailer, I had to beg them to bring in uh, her bottling, which is called the Nosa Misao. Uh, so Nosa means our, essentially. So I think one of you are drinking the Nosa Calcario, uh, yeah, right? Yeah, so that means our soil. Uh, and the, the Nosa Misao means uh, our mission, and it's from a single prephylloxera vineyard. Um, and it's something that would retail for like 150 bucks. Uh, yeah. Incredible wine, um, but I had to basically like tell them I was gonna buy the whole U.S. allocation if they were gonna bring it in. Um, <laughs> right. And right. Uh, Polaner uh, imports Neoport, who makes incredible wine all over Portugal. You know, we could do a whole podcast on Neoport. You know, arguably the most influential producer uh, in terms of uh, influencing the style of wine and community of winemakers in any country in Europe. Um, the impact he has on Portuguese wine is impossible to overstate. Uh, and he makes incredible wine, or his winemaker in Virata makes incredible wine. Uh, and I don't think that they work with all of the cuvées. Uh, they work with his full uh, Doro range. Those wines are better known. Things like Neoport Coche and uh, Tiara and Rodoma. Uh, I think the Virata wines you might not find in the United States, even though those wines are you know, really beautiful, really incredible. Um, but, you know... Today, for the first time in a long, long time, I think you can find all of the Baga friends um, imported into the United States, uh, which is very cool. Yeah, I think a, a watershed moment in Portuguese wine importing history. Because <laughs> I mean, these are these cool. are producers that are, I think, representing one of the most exciting regions in Europe, and they're generally, you know, it's a standard of quality. I think among them that is is really important. No, for sure, this wine's super cool. The Nosa Calcario, it's like, <clears throat> so it has like, you know, per your, per your advice, I opened it up and I double decanted it like, I don't know, four hours ago. Mm -hmm. Um, cause it's got a good amount of reduction on it and it's got that like 
it's funny, people use like sort of coded words, like they'll say like, oh, it's got, you know, th this type of reduction on it or whatever. Like, I feel like when, when some people tend to use the phrase volcanic reduction to kind of like get away with saying like, yeah, it's got some bad reduction on it, but like, yeah. that's just the soil, you know? And you're like, no, <laughs> I mean, it is, but also... No, you let you your know, fermentation this, this run had... too hot and didn't give it enough oxygen. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, so, so um, there, there are like the... Um, I really like the like the Bermejos, mm -hmm. um, those wines, the Canary Island ones. Those like have this, I think, really some of the most like the purest expression of that like, and and some uh, Norello. Yeah, the really like beautiful volcanic reduction on there, mm -hmm. and this has a like very very good volcanic reduction. So I'm not using that coded to say there's like bad reduction on it or anything. Um, in terms of like the fruit on it, it almost has the density of like. So this is a 2017. Mm -hmm. It's got like the the vibrancy of fruit that like a like a like a crew Beaujolais would not mm -hmm. necessarily like the flavors of fruit but like that sort of like density of fresh fruit aromatic wise yeah that you're like ooh you want for in like a really refreshing young wine like it's got that but it's got this cool reduction then it has a bunch of cool like earthy savory like clay cool things going on like there's just a lot and yeah. every time I go to and that that sort of Beaujolais uh, is very Philippa. Like, that's not necessarily a, oh, okay. a Baga thing, uh, broadly speaking. You know, her wines tend to just have this, like, density of fruit and juiciness to them um, that is really delicious. Uh, whereas, yeah, like, her... That's not carbonic or anything. No, you know, no. Well, yeah, I mean, she's probably doing some whole cluster. You know, she's probably getting, like, a little bit of semi-carbonic maceration, just incidentally. Mm -hmm. um, but the way that she makes the wines is just, like, really... I mean, I... I don't import her wines. I don't speak with her on a regular basis like I do with the Luis Pazzo people. Mm -hmm. um, but the impression I get is that, you know, a lot of what she is doing is about sort of preserving that fidelity of fruit um, as sort of part of the larger picture of how she's expressing Baga. And that sort of smoky characteristic, you know, like we were saying, the soils here are limestone. Um, but the saying is, is that like Baga on limestone gives you that smoky characteristic. And that's something that you get huh. in the red wines as well as the sparkling wines. Because um, that's the other really amazing thing about Bayrata as a place is that it's really only one of the one of the only wine regions in the world that I think makes truly world class red, white, and sparkling wine. Uh, all three I think can be incredible sort of world beaters in their respective categories. Nice, yeah, Boone. What's the what's the sparkling like? Oh, it's it, uh, it's funny that the smoky character you just commented on it, like the very clean. Um, Oh, I, cedar, cedar smoke, like kind of hmm. whiff uh, that this has is lovely. Smoke is uh, oh, such a painful like descriptor <laughs> nowadays for uh, yeah yeah yeah. Uh, well, uh, people people you down personally. in Australia certainly, but yeah, me personally, yeah, that's <laughs> really yeah. Gotta gotta schedule another appointment with the uh, psychoanalyst. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, the character of like the the fruit and how it's connected to the structure of the wine and the, uh, the sort of tannic makeup of the wine is yeah it's really remarkable how um what you were saying about the freshness of fruit the vibrancy of fruit it's all there but there is this uh hmm how to how to get at it like like that slight like smoky like the sweet smell of salmon fat as it's smoking kind of but like the flavor of that as opposed Ooh. to necessarily yeah smell yeah of it. i mean the wines are yeah, savory yeah. and meaty you know philippa's wines yeah. for me always have these sort of like is it gamay is it syrah like it when you're in the blind oh, tasting yeah. sort of situation um 
I you know, the, the alcohol in the wines is going to be lower than any of those things. Um, yeah. But... No, because this is only 11.5%, I think. Um, yeah. Which is in just lovely, especially given the, like, it's not heavy, but it's got this great weight on the palate. Like, it's got a very, in terms of structure, just a very sort of, um, oh, uh, I don't know what the best term would be. Like, uh, calling something 12-gauge wine seems weird yeah that has some some energy and textual density to it (laughs) for sure um but i mean just to give you like a bit of context you know that the 3b uh is you know the very entry-level sparkling wine that she makes um yeah like the and as they say you know there's there's levels to this shit like um the the high the the top end of sparkling wine in Byrata is like really incredible and it's not actually that expensive uh you know the the 3b is a champagne method wine but very little time on the lees is my understanding um so like Mm -hmm. you know six to nine months or something like that very little time on the lees it's not supposed to be this uh sort of secondary tertiary sort of flavor driven wine it's all about sort of just capturing the the fruit and sort of soil transparency of the vintage um yeah well and it's i was gonna say its structure is much more that of almost a like a tempranillo rosé or a syrah rosé and not that of a sparkling wine that has sat on its lees and gotten a lot of autolysis it this is very like you know driving and um oh uh 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 straining's the wrong word but got it's got that like tension to it that yeah is somewhat yeah, um absolutely and you know there's a lot of reasons for why wine in general and sparkling wine is so amazing in Virata and the coast of Portugal. Um, but like, if you want that sort of more luxurious autolytic experience, you know, I sell wines from Luis Pato that are anywhere between, you know, 36 months standard and 10 years on the lease. Um, like there is Good a God. culture of, and you'll never guess how expensive the 10 year bottling is. Um, it's a, a stupid deal. Um, but, uh, <laughs> You know, they're, they're, this was sort of what I was saying. They're, there's still a bit of a problem today, even among sort of the more established sort of fine wine importers, I guess you could say, you know, Philippa does make a wine that's from like a crazy old Solera with a lot of wine on the lees. I just don't think that Skernik brings it in. Uh, I mean, it would be quite expensive, I think. Um, but at some point, you just have to plant the flag and say the wines are worth it uh, because they are. Um, but like in general, the coast of Portugal is producing wines, tremendously low pH, you know, champagne level pHs, like some, a lot of my producers struggle to get above like three, uh, like it's, it's totally nuts. And so the, the potential for high acid, super fresh yet sort of phenolically developed and texturally dense wines, um, is it's not just that Portugal is making good wine for the money in that context. It's that it's capable of making some of the best wine in the world, uh, sort of among that profile. So if you like high acid balanced alcohol, but again, like phenolically and texturally developed wines, um, places like Byrata, places like Kalayash are some of the best places in the world to be drinking wine. Very cool. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm now drinking the, the Luis. So the, the like L-U-I-S, it's pronounced like L-I-U- or L-U-I-S-H? Yeah, like so Luis. Luis. I, okay. I am not an expert on Portuguese pronunciation. I, uh-huh. I'm, you know, I... You're more of an expert than I am, so... Uh, no, I, you know, for the for the record, I want to state my, yeah, state yeah. my ignorance. Uh, but Guinness a, a lot of uh, S's that end words are sort of soft S's. Okay, uh, okay, yeah. cool. So Luis so Pato. The, the Luis Pato. Yeah. You know, like he's shushing somebody. <laughs> yeah. 
Which is we're, my favorite type of yeah. We as Cork Taint are going for the Guinness World Record of worst Portuguese pronunciation, and by the end of this episode, we hope to have secured that. <laughs> The competition is, is steep, I think, actually. <laughs> no, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah, yeah, we've already... Yeah. No, so, so of the 2016... Um, again, it's so funny. <laughs> it's like you can have so much experience with wine from, like, everywhere. And then, like, there's this one, um, this, this really great shop, uh, Portugalia. Well, it's not really a shop. It's like a... I guess they're an importer. Like, it's a, it's a huge market, and they have, a, like, a, um, a wine section in there. Yeah, it's like I've heard of it. Bigger than most wine stores. Yeah, and it's all Portuguese stuff. And it's like it's like and it's funny. It's like you can have so much experience with wines in other parts of the world, and then like you walk into that t- that type of store, and you're like, oh, it's like I've it's like I've never had wine before. It's like when I was first getting into wine, and I walked into a wine store, and I like didn't know anything. Yeah, and I'm looking at all these labels, and I don't know what any of this fucking shit is. Um, but so I'm like looking at this label, and like, what is where is the cuvee on here? It's not Baga. It's not Vino Tinto. It's not red wine. Uh, so it must be the Vinos Velas. Vinos Velas, exactly. Okay. Oh, right. SH. Damn. Yeah. And the. Uh, yeah. Whenever you have like an H that follows a consonant, it sort of becomes like yeah. an Enya. So it's oh, not necessarily wow. that the. It's not. Vinos Velas. Yeah, exactly. So the H is almost. It's not really Damn. pronounced. It like sort of becomes like a. Just funky, the a funkification of, it. a little, of the letter. It's a little spice on the yeah, exactly. spice on the previous concept. Uh, which just means old vines. Yeah. So uh, okay. the the, the Vignes Valles is sort of at the same level as Nosa Calcario in both the Luis Pato and Philip Pato categories. It's obviously not a perfect okay. analogy, but think of these as like the village right, the village right. level ones. Yeah, so for the for the, the Luis Pato, I think so when I first opened it up, right, I decanted these and I was like the the Luis Pato almost came across like kind of on like a little muted aromatically and a little more like hollow on the the mid palate and the um and the Nosa Cocario seemed like fuller and I was like oh wow okay cool this is like the more impressive one but now that I've they've gotten more air and I'm checking back in like the Luis Pato is ones that I, that I kind of I mean they're both very good but I keep coming back to it being like wow this is this is this is pretty fascinating yeah it's like in this in this um just as a personal preference um i like savory over fruit kind of i think there's like there can be more like i love fruit on wine but i think the really interesting like storytelling kind of that a wine can do is in the is in the savory stuff kind of especially as it ages and this has really interesting like in the sort of same way that like older like more traditional bordeaux does uh in like the not like not like manure or like bread or anything like that but the way that you'll get like the clay, loamy, gravelly sort of stuff out of out of Bordeaux, yeah, this this does in a very interesting way. That it's kind of pretty kind of like captivating. Yeah, and you've sort of really like Luis Pato's style to me really plays off of those sort of like Bordeaux slash Barolo sensibilities, where the wines are very floral, they're very savory, uh, but they're very sort of herbally complex. Uh, and they so they can have really beautiful fruit. And the other difference is the vintages, right? I think you have the Luis Prato is the 16 and the Philip is the 17. Yeah. You know, 16 yeah, is yeah. this super, f- like, red fruited, red floral vintage. You know, Baga is mm-hmm. always Nebbiolo adjacent, but 16 is a very Nebbiolo adjacent vintage and style. Oh, okay. Um, like, very cool. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, if if, if Nebbiolo, the, the classic description is uh, tar and rose petals, you know, Baga mm-hmm. for me is like violets and vinyl. Um, like, it just sort of has huh. these darker tones to both the fruit and sort of the... Mm-hmm. 
uh, sort of earth tones to it. Um, but 16 is sort of this odd vintage where it is a bit more rose petal and it is a bit more sort of tarry. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just like a super elegant vintage texturally as well, which I can sort of understand yeah. why you're saying like, oh, it seems like a bit more hollow in the, hollow in the mid palette. Um, but really it's more, no, it's like, it's just a bit lifted. Out. Just um, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a super, super lifted vintage. Whereas 17 is a bit more like of a what you would call i mean it's you know for people who are familiar with you know drinking burgundy for instance the 16s versus the 17s it's very comparable analogy whereas the 16 is like almost this like red riesling vintage and like 17 has like just more unctuousness <laughs> and like fruit to it mm-hmm. uh, and the 17 luge patos have more fruit to them um you know like i was saying the, these sense. are wines that are like burgundy super transparent of vintage and place and time um yeah that makes sense but both of the wines i think are still they still have the signature of the winemaker, uh, okay. of the winemaker there. Yeah, but I mean, I, 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 I don't want to say I have a preference between the two producers, but Luis Pato right, for right, me, right. you know, in the pantheon of great European winemakers, both in terms of the quality of the wine and like the legacy that they have on the place, you know, should be up there with like the sort of like Conterno and Altares of uh, Barolo or, you know, the Dijac or the Rousseaus or... Uh, mm-hmm you know, the Loise or DRCs of, uh, of Burgundy. Uh, and obviously, you know, those wines are famous for a, a million different reasons, but in terms of defining the, the style and place, you know, Luis Pato is, mm-hmm. is, is the guy. Totally. And you're drinking one too, right? I drank you it already. I, I poured myself a glass. And then oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so you're saying it's from 05? What's the, immediately that makes me think of like the, like, you know, other like age worthy, like immediately when you say you're drinking like seventeen or eighteen year old uh, old rosé. I'm yeah. gonna think of like you know other other producers that are known for that sort of thing, but I don't want to you know. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I pose my idea. No, no. I mean, you. I've, I was drinking a glass of 05 rosé. Uh, it's a bit of a a weird wine, and working with Luis Pato, he makes lots of little weird wines. Um, you know, he he's a guy who is at once both like important for defining the classic style of a region, yet is like constantly on and i won't say this is my line there was an article i think in punch that came out you know a year or two ago where he was described or the pato family was sort of described as the avant-garde of Bayrata. uh and it it's totally fitting you know he's someone who's always pushing the boundaries of style and category and experimenting with weird stuff uh and so exactly one year they made a 100 percent baga rosé from their old vineyards um and they baga is such a high acid such a reductive grape variety and they essentially made the wine out of like vinclar like the same because baga is also the grape that they use for the sparkling ones um and Mm -hmm. so they essentially made a still sparkling rosé um and they taste this is the story that has been told to me from the pato family um they essentially tasted it and were like this is too reduced let's like taste it again in a year or like six months or whatever and see if we want to sell it then uh and then they lost it in the cellar it was like several pallets of rosé um and so this is not like a lopez de heredia situation where they have this like incredible program and like big master plan about like saving and releasing old vintages (laughs) it's like the guy just gets bored and like always is experimenting with a few things every vintage Uh, oh i don't know if i want to sell this right away uh and then Mm -hmm. you know 
walking into that cellar is just like pallets and pallets of old wine where they're not entirely sure what's in them. Uh, and Maria, who's Luis's middle daughter, so Philippa's younger sister, has started working at the Luis Prato estate. And now she is making the wines. Um, but she has also been essential in getting that cellar organized, which is why you're now starting to see some older wine being released because they're figuring out oh, okay. what, what what's sense. going on. They literally um, just found it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like they they literally just found That's it. So, so that wine, it, it was not a wine that was necessarily like we're going to age this for 17 years right. or whatever. Um, you know, it was done in stainless steel for 9 months and then bottled and then aged in bottle for 17 years. Huh. And that's really like more of a like that's not to say like it's not to say that other vintages of their rosé could not age well, but that seems like because it was so reductive and that was very kind of specific to that vintage, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's the only year they made a rosé like that. They have made pink-colored wines uh, in the past that are much cheaper, Um, but those wines are actually almost all the white grape Maria Gomez with, like, skins from Baga to make it pink, Um, which is, like I was saying, Luis Paso constantly experimenting with these types of things. Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean, Baga is just an inherently, incredibly age-worthy variety you've got a tremendous amount of sort of phenolic content, really low pH, really high acid numbers. Like it's it's harder to make a baga that won't age than to make a baga that will. You've got to really sort of be making a giant sort of unctuous bomb on purpose. Um, and even those wines <laughs> will probably age well. Uh, yeah, it's you're 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 sort of playing on easy mode when it comes to making great classic wine, assuming that you've done the farming well. What are like some of the oldest vintages that you've had? Um, the oldest vintages of Baga that I've had are all from the 80s. Uh, so the history of Portuguese wine um, is and is one that is, I would say, the closest analogy is sort of like the history of some like ex-Soviet republics, where essentially mm-hmm. what you had during the Salazar regime was forced not collectivization in terms of land ownership, but collectivization in terms of winemaking. So the Salazar regime wanted everything essentially to be like the port industry or the Madeira industry, where you had all of these thousands and thousands of farmers selling to these larger corporate entities to actually make the wine. Um, And where these corporate entities did not exist, uh, like in places like the Dow or places like Bayrata, uh, or most of, I mean, most of Alentejo's vines just got ripped up because the Salazar regime decided that these places were going to be for wheat or something or olives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there really were not private estate producers in most of Portugal outside of the Douro and Madeira and a few other very obscure places uh, from sort of the 1940s into the 19. 19- 70s and 80s and you know the Salazar regime ended you know before then but there was all this inertia of both the the laws in the country which required that the producers sell grapes to the co-op or just that the families were so used to selling their grapes to the co-op and you know you you farm the grapes you sell it you get paid right away easy done um and so the sort of renaissance of estate-made fine Portuguese wine only really gets started in like the late 70s, early 80s across most of Portugal. Um, And so Luís Pato and his father were a big part of that in Bairrada, as well as a few other producers that are sort of now defunct. 
Um, but you can, if you, the bottles are not easy to find either. Um, but some of the greatest wines I've ever had is, you know, old Byrata from the eight, early eighties. Uh, and they're incredible. Uh, they just, again, they drink like, you know, they, they, they drink like Byrata, but it's this beautiful, <laughs> ethereal, still great fruit, but salty, savory, you know, the, the coast of Portugal has a flavor. The minerality has the salinity to it that you can really sort of feel, uh, in terms of the coast. And I, I hope you guys can, can, can taste that in the wines that you're drinking now. Uh, you know, there's a, a saltiness to these wines that, you know, people talk about Burgundy being salty or, um, you know, Sancerre being salty. They're not salty like these ones. Um, there, there's, no, there's a, dis- yeah, a distinct briny blood orange flavor. That's yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Byrata Baga does the thing that Nebbiola does where we're, when you're working at lower levels of ripeness, it sort of like blurs the line into sort of more citrus categories of fruit as well. Like the rosé that I'm drinking or was drinking is like very blood orangey, very like almost melony and it's a hundred percent Baga. Yeah. It's got this, like the saltiness to it though, isn't, it's not like, um, saltiness that I've really gotten in other, in a lot, like su- at least super obviously in other wines, like you'll have some, you'll have some like Chablis <clears throat> where it literally takes someone, tastes like someone just, or like even Rieslings where it tastes like someone just put salt in your wine. Yeah. You know, whereas this feels like it's almost like a, um, like a like a especially especially the the Luis Pato with the the texture of it almost has like a like a piece of like salty cured meat yeah like type of with like a like a high fat content sitting on your tongue and so you get the like your mouth salivates from the 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 acid in the wine and it meshes really well with like the sort of the unctuousness you would get from like a the fat and like a piece of like hummus or something like that yeah 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 um but yeah I don't know it's uh it's it's interesting because it's like when you've You've been into wine for a while, and uh, you know it, it kind of seems like at the beginning you're like you know super like hungry for knowledge, and you just want to try like as many different things as possible. And after a while, you kind of get set in like your preferences to a certain extent, or at least like you know maybe you've had bad experiences with certain grapes, and you don't want to really like you're not as likely to try it again. You're more like oh I I know I've had more Chablis that that I've liked than like the Sancerres, so why would I why would I waste my money on buying another Sancerre when I can probably buy a Chablis, you know, whatever like that. Yeah. And then after you get in that pattern for a while, you kind of are like less likely to get in that. You're more likely to explore things that you know that you like than branch out to try completely new things. And in doing so, when you do try something that's completely different, I think a lot of people are kind of like, oh, that's not familiar. I don't really want to try that out more. But if you embrace it, you're like, what's the, this thing is, this is crazy. Like I haven't, I've never tasted anything like this before. And it's like, that's probably what like Grenache tasted like the first time you had that, but that was so long ago that you don't even really, you don't remember that. Yeah, so no, absolutely. Point. I mean, it's it's been one of the great things about this business is getting to explore, you know, and introduce people to even like very experienced wine professionals to something totally new. Uh, and, you know, that certainly has its challenges. Uh, you know, getting in front of people when you're trying to sell them weird Portuguese wine they've never heard of is hard. Um, but selling them the wine once you're in front of them is the easiest part of my job because so often the wine just really speaks for <laughs> itself. And, you know, the, the wines are not all cheap. Uh, you know, I feel really strongly about not just right. selling cheap Portuguese wine. Um, but no matter what I'm selling, pretty much I can still have a great conversation about value, especially because, you know, we've always talked about how nuts Burgundy prices are, but the 2020s and 2021s are just another level of ridiculousness. 
Um, and uh, for all French wine, the 2021 prices are going through the roof. And the same is true for a lot of Northern Italian as well. And, you know, a lot of places are going to struggle to, you know, fill their normal BTG slots with the margins they need on the traditional categories that they've been working with. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely, I think, an opportunity for new and exciting things and especially new and exciting things that also aren't that weird. Um, because in a lot of ways, (laughs) you know, it's really easy to drink these wines that you're drinking now and understand why they're delicious and also easily sort of translate them to a frame of reference, uh, of wines that you already enjoy. You know, the Philippa Pato and Luis Pato both have these sort of, Syrah e adjacent things, and then one of them goes a bit more gamay, and one of them goes a bit more nebbiolo. Uh, but those are really easy sort of things to talk about at the table. They're easy things to talk about in a sales email, um, and yeah, they're they're delicious in all the classic ways, just in their own sort of unique combination and with their own unique sort of again imprint of this coastal super maritime climate, which is just exciting and beautiful. So I have like a sort of a, a two-parter question. Um, the in uh, I don't know if you've been out to Walla Walla in uh, you know in, in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a super cool place. Like it's this this tiny little town. In order to get there, you got to like fly to Seattle, and then you take a little like plane to from Seattle to there. And it's funny the plane I was on there where it was like clearly out of like the seventies. There was still like ashtrays and the armrests. You know, yeah. Like it was the most hilarious flight I'd ever been on. But when I was there. Um, there's a lot of really great, great, great wine there. And I uh, was asking them, like, yeah, do you guys see, like, this ever, like, as being potential for, like, I don't know, like, big tourism, you know? Like, and, uh, you know, like, not saying it's going to turn into Napa, but, like, what do you think? And they were like, I mean, not really, because, like, San Francisco is, like, an hour away from Napa. And, like, here we're, like, four-hour drive from Seattle. We're a four-hour drive from Portland. Like, unless there's some crazy thing that happens where a gigantic city gets built up right here. Like it's, it's, it's very likely that this place is just going to stay kind of quiet for a while. The reputation for the wines might, might grow, but more than likely this town's going to stay somewhat the same. Do for Barriada, I've never been there, but like, how is that too? So here's the, the two-parter. Mm-hmm. Do you see that ever having a likelihood of um, developing like a kind of a tourist industry around it? And how is it to visit Currently, is it kind of like quaint and people are super nice and they'll taste down whatever? Um, yeah, um, sort of yes and yes. Uh, I mean, Portugal as a country as a whole is tiny, right? You can pretty much drive from the mm-hmm. northwestern point to the southeastern point in six hours. Um, and Bairata is about a 45-minute drive south of Porto, maybe an hour and a half to two hours north of Lisbon. Um, and there's a lot of amazing wine, especially, you know, if you're coming from Lisbon, in between. Like, there's amazing wine made all up and down the coast and into the interior of Portugal. Um, you know, I, I get asked all the time um, from people who are going to be traveling to Portugal because it seems like such a common tourist destination these days, especially on the East Coast. I don't know so much about on the West Coast. Uh, the problem is, is that people are just going to Lisbon or they're just going to Lisbon and Porto. Mm. Uh, and those are great cities. Uh, I don't actually spend very much time in them. Whenever I go to Portugal, I rent a car and immediately drive off into the countryside. Uh, and so I'm not actually the greatest person in the world to ask about, you know, Lisbon restaurant recommendations. I end up, I just ask my mm-hmm. producers uh, what they where they like to go and eat. Um, but 
Bayrata is, again, it's very easy to get to. Uh, it's just off of the A1, which is the most important road in Portugal. Um, yeah, I mean, so like the 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 sort of regional dish in in uh, in Bayrata is suckling pig. Um, okay. And Bayrata is a very small, pretty sleepy place still. And mm-hmm. on the way, I can't remember the name of the town. My business partner, Ben Wood. But there's essentially a town that's like, because Bayrata is the name of the region, not the name of any of the individual cities. One of the small towns in Bayrata is like the national capital of suckling pig. And the town is one street, and every single restaurant in the street is a suckling pig restaurant. Um, nice. Yeah. And they, they all have names like King of Suckling Pig or, like, Home of the King of the Suckling Pig or, like, Ruler of Pig. Um, nice. Or James, James Suckling, suckling. Pig. Yeah. James there's, there's suckling a, I knew there was a joke in there somewhere. You guys are cleverer yeah, than me. Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so Byrod is very easy to get to, uh, and it's still pretty sleepy. You know, all of these producers, I would say, you would still want to – uh, call ahead of time, um, just to let them know you're coming. Uh, but it's very easy to make appointments, at least with Luis Bato. I can't necessarily speak for for Philippa, um, but the it's wonderful, and you will go there, and they will open up twenty year old baga for you, and they will open up fifteen year old white wines, and you will drink very well, and you will eat a suckling pig sandwich, um, and you will have suckling pig sandwich. You will have a great time. That's a um, big sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Or a very small pig. <laughs> um, I feel like you need Texas toast. Fresh, like fresh pigs. Um, <laughs> yeah, and but it, I mean, in general, like there are so many incredible wine regions in Portugal that are so easy to get to from Lisbon and Porto. Um, it's the scale is just so much smaller than obviously the United States, but even France or Spain <laughs> or right, um, and. You know, we're, we're talking about Bayrata right now, but there are so many incredibly exciting wine regions in Portugal, um, you know, so close to Lisbon. Lisbon, I will go out there and say, is maybe the best wine producing city in the world. Um, as in, there are world class wine regions that are a 40 minute drive from the airport. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Like you have Collarche, which is just northwest of the city uh, and it is maybe the most maritime climate in Europe for a little wine region. Um, the wines are unbelievable. And th- that's a place in Portugal where you can find really old wine. And Collage is probably, you know, maybe consistently the most ageable table wine in the world. You can still find old bottles of Collage going back to the 1930s that are delicious. They won't be cheap, but they will be consistently <laughs> wine, which you cannot really say for, you know, Burgundy or Barolo right, or right. you know German Riesling or whatever uh, you know just to the southeast of Lisbon you have Setubal uh, which is an incredible dessert wine region um, it's really tiny there's only a few producers left the same is true of Collage um, but the wines are sort of from Setubal like halfway between Madeira and Port where they have like a bit more fruit but also all of this sort of salty savoriness to them um, they're like incredible Carcavelos is right there as well uh, and then if you move further north into sort of Lisboa as a wine region, there's all of this like really delicious sort of easy, fun, fruity wine being made uh, in the same style as like very Beaujolais adjacent wines or very sort of Sancerre adjacent wines um, in like various different sort of DOs of Lisboa. And all of this is you know, less than an hour drive away from city center. 
Very cool. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And Lisbon isn't even the famous wine city in Portugal. It's Porto. But it's... Yeah. 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 No, man. It's uh, it's it seems like it'd be a very cool, uh, cool place to visit. And um, I, uh, you know, eat a lot of salt cod. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't really eat any salt cod when I go. I understand really? why salt yeah. cod is a, you know, important food in the history of Portugal. But it's, right. you know, like, so my family is, uh, all of my mother's family is, you know, born and bred Scottish. I was born in Scotland. And right. I will be the first person to say that, for the most part, British food is not good. Uh, <laughs> like, the, the cuisine is changing. Like, there's so much exciting food that's happening in the UK. But, like, so much of it is, like, World War II adjacent, like, ration poverty, like, food. Um, like, yeah. canned under-seasoned, but simultaneously too salty, uh, like, not very delicious food. And, like, salt cod is, like, you know, the food of a culture of people that were, like, going out into the ocean and being sailors and, like, doing, you know, dangerous, not very luxurious, like, established sort of food culture things. Um, like, there is incredible food in Portugal, um, but you know you can you can move past the salt cod i think like pretty fast um like the some the greatest pork <laughs> i've ever had in my life is in portugal um like unbelievable shellfish uh you have to order the prosciutto when you go which are you know gooseneck barnacles they sort of look like Ooh. black fingers that are all kind of curled and fucked up but um uh they taste like oysters that are the most oystery oysters you've ever had and uh like tons of amazing fish yeah eat as many vegetables as you can before you go is my other piece of advice right 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 right. you won't be getting served many of those yeah Yeah. (laughs) um that's what the wine's for it's technically a vegetable yeah yeah yeah. you're getting all of your your fiber um yeah and so you know we we've talked really all about coastal wines coming from portugal but you know, some of the most exciting wines are also coming from the interior. Um, you know, Portugal, in addition to having sort of the most maritime climate in Europe on the West Coast, has one of the great repositories of pre-phylloxera vine material as you move towards the Spanish border. There's all of these crazy, oh, very cool. like, undepopulated mountains is probably the best way to describe it, where there's all these old abandoned vineyards. Uh, and in the same way that, like, uh, Bierzo is exciting, uh, and because you have all of these young people that are going in and finding all of these really old Mencia vines and mixed plantings of Mencia, you know, and that if you look at sort of where the longitude of that is, it's sort of along the Spanish Portuguese border, like that whole sort of up and down area, both in Portugal and Spain is filled with all of these amazing, incredible mountains and old vineyards. Um, and a lot of uh, what I'm excited about and selling right now are wines coming from these really high elevation, beautiful old vineyards there. Um, you know, it's also something worth exploring. Very cool. Nice, man. Yeah, I'm excited to try more of that stuff. Well, hopefully there will be more excited Portuguese wine coming your way soon. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Stoked. All right, man. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. This was fun. Learned a lot. And, yeah. Uh, I mean... I'll have to listen to this episode a few times to actually... Have it have it sink in. <laughs> yeah, I hope I, I hope I didn't but... talk too much. I hope I wasn't too boring. I hope it was uh, no. That's why of your of your yeah, level of fun. The, the, your yeah, your listenership comes to uh, comes to yeah. expect. Well, we we want them to learn something occasionally. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, this whole conversation has made me realize that besides port wines, I think most of the 
Portuguese wine I've had has been from Filippo Pato. <laughs> I think about it because I've had the uh, the one that you're drinking, Tom. Uh, I think a couple times, but uh, but yeah, that's really kind of it. So I need to I need to go do some more uh, some more exploring. Fine yeah, more. well, I mean, it's it's not necessarily through any fault of your own. Like uh, distributors, you know, Skernik has done a really good job with the Filippo Pato brand. You know, they've been one of the few people that have really uh, gotten a really great sort of new wave Portuguese producer out into the market. Um, and so it's, you know, that she was one of my first uh, influences in Portuguese wine as well. And I used to sell her wines super enthusiastically. Uh, and so hopefully in the next several months and years, uh, the the people of the wine drinkers of the United States will have an easier time getting exposed to, to more cooler and more interesting Portuguese wine. Looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, and you guys have to go. It's the it's an easy yeah. place to get to, and it's an incredible place to just be and drink wine. Hey, dude, can't wait! It's gonna happen. We're going take the Oscar Mayer. Yeah, yeah. We're sailing three Oscar Mayer Wiener mobiles back across the Atlantic, <laughs> and then we're gonna invade. We're gonna invade Spain via Portugal. Yeah, cork taint uh, field trip. I think should happen. Yeah, I think you guys could do yep. some episodes on the road. I think. You know, your $30 microphones can, can probably be checked. I think so. Oh, they can. Yeah. I've done it before. Yeah. <laughs> yep. As have I. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Coming, Sounds coming good. to you live from the baggage compartment above your seats. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, enjoy the rest of your wines. Those, uh, especially the red wines, will drink even better tomorrow. Um, they, they will be absolutely nice. stellar. Nice. I'll shove a cork in it and uh, check her out. Thanks, man. All right. Thank yeah. you. Thank you yeah, for having me. You, I really man, appreciate Lewis. it. Yeah. Oh, it's right. it's always wonderful to talk to somebody truly passionate about about a place and a type of wine and just anything really. But you know, specifically for the subject of this podcast, uh, wine tends to you know get off topic a little too quickly when someone brings up. Whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, you know, whoa. Ah, you know. Yeah, no, well, wine, say, wine is all about bringing people together and swamp facilitating conversation and. <laughs> I think you guys are you guys are doing exactly the right thing. Justice. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, Thank you. Doing we appreciate doing it too, and I think the world will be a better place. We yeah. just gotta figure out a way to. Um, what do we have to end? Uh, mm-hmm. What do we have? We gotta, to, we gotta uh, bring this. Uh, we gotta bring this ship into port. Oh, okay. I was, oh, I was saying we just gotta like end world hunger, or I mean, we're not. Oh, gonna do that. oh, I thought yeah. you meant end but, the like, podcast on like a button, something or, like a bad pun. Like we need to no, save no. the wine drinkers of the world a lot of money because they're about to go and buy some unbelievably expensive 2021 Burgundy, and they shouldn't. They should buy some Byrata instead. Nice. Yes. There we go. Yeah. That's it, folks. Yeah. Yep. All right. Signing off. Hey, folks, if you want to hear part two, uh, sign up. Uh, go to patreon.com slash corktaint and sign up, and you can hear uh, uh, our – we're going to do like a reaction – video to a reaction to podcast to our podcast so we're going to play the podcast over and we're going to talk over ourselves it's gonna be great this has got to be the worst cold open of all time yeah no no i'm going to use this bit to to put into because i haven't put the other episode out or edited it yet so i'm going to use this chunk on the other one no that's what i mean like using this as the intro for the other one would be hilariously bad oh the intro for the other one yeah Yeah. that would be very bad that wouldn't make any sense so (laughs) uh, so you want to put it as the end as an outro, yes. Well, it's still bad. <laughs> it's still bad. All it's right, still... goodbye. We love you. <laughs>